Hi and welcome to St Ninian's Sermons Podcast. My name's Stuart, I'm the Minister at St Ninian's in Stonehouse, which is in Scotland. We are a local ecumenical partnership between the Church of Scotland and the United Reformed Church and that means we reflect both traditions in our work and worship. So let's listen to our reading for this week and then get on to the sermon. Our first reading this morning comes from 2 Kings chapter 5, reading from verse 1 to 17. Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, was highly respected and esteemed by the king of Syria, because through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to the Syrian forces. He was a great soldier, but he suffered from a dreadful skin disease. In one of their raids against Israel, the Syrians had carried off a little Israelite girl who became a servant of Naaman's wife. One day she said to her mistress, I wish that my master could go to the prophet who lives in Samaria. He would cure him of his disease. When Naaman heard of this, he went to the king and told him what the girl had said. The king said, Go to the king of Israel and take this letter to him. So Naaman set out taking 30,000 pieces of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, and 10 changes of fine clothes. The letter that he took read, This letter will introduce my officer Naaman. I want you to cure him of his disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and exclaimed, How can the king of Syria expect me to cure this man? Does he think that I am God with the power of life and death? It's plain that he is trying to start a quarrel with me. When the prophet Elisha heard what had happened, he sent word to the king. Why are you so upset? Send the man to me and I'll show him that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariot and stopped at the entrance to Elisha's house. Elisha sent a servant out to tell him to go and wash himself seven times in the Jordan River and he would be completely cured of his disease. But Naaman left in a rage saying, I thought he would at least come out to me, pray to the Lord his God, wave his hand over the disease spot and cure me. Besides, aren't the rivers Abana and Fafpar back in Damascus better than any river in Israel I could have washed in them and been cured his servant went up to him and said sir if the prophet had told you to do something difficult you would have done it now why can't you just wash yourself as he said and be cured so Naaman went down to the Jordan dipped himself in it seven times as Elisha had instructed and he was completely cured His flesh became firm and healthy like that of a child. He returned to Elisha with all his men and said, Now I know that there is no God but the God of Israel. So please, sir, accept a gift from me. Elisha answered, By the living Lord whom I serve, I swear that I will not accept a gift. Naaman insisted that he accept it, but he would not. So Naaman said, If you won't accept my gift, then let me have two mule loads of earth to take home with me, because from now on 
I will not offer sacrifices or burnt offerings to any God except the Lord. Our second reading is from Luke chapter 10, reading from verses 1 to 11 and then 16 to 20. After this, the Lord chose another 72 men and sent them out two by two to go ahead of him to every town and place where he himself was about to go. He said to them, There is a large harvest, but few workers to gather it in. Pray to the owner of the harvest that he will send out workers to gather in this harvest. Go, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or a beggar's bag or shoes. Don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you go into a house, first say, Peace be with this house. If someone who is peace-loving lives there, let your greeting of peace remain on that person. If not, take back your greeting of peace. Stay in that same house, eating and drinking whatever they offer you, for workers should be given their pay. Don't move around from one house to another. Wherever you go into a town and are made welcome, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in that town and say to the people there, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you go into a town and are not welcome, go out in the streets and say, even the dust from your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. But remember that the kingdom of God has come near you. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. The 72 men came back in great joy. Lord, they said, even the demons obeyed us when we gave the command in your name. Jesus answered them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Listen, I have given you authority so that you can walk on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy and nothing will hurt you but don't be glad because the evil spirits obey you rather be glad because your names are written in heaven Amen So here's a question what's your time worth? What's your time worth? An hour of your time what do you think it's worth? <laughs> eh? If you're a plumber, it's about 40 quid. <laughs> plus a college charge. <laughs> plus, aye. Plus, plus, plus. That's what we do, though, isn't it? We measure our time based on what we think our skills are worth. Every time we apply for a job or we do something like that, we call somebody out, we make a decision whether we think it's worth it, don't we? Would I work for that amount of money per hour? Am I worth it? Or would I pay someone else to work for me for that amount per hour? In our story today, Naaman is a man of high standing. He's the commander of the army of King Aram. He's wealthy, he's successful, and he's very, very powerful. 
He's used to telling people what to do and having it done. Naaman's time is precious. And despite all his power and wealth and status and standing, he has leprosy, skin disease that's incurable. And there's absolutely nothing that anybody can do about it. It's perhaps ironic then that in the story it's a young girl, a captive, a slave, who's forced to work for Naaman's wife, who's the one that points him in the direction of the prophet Elisha. A prophet of God, a foreigner, who might be able to cure him. The young girl's kind of like the exact opposite of Naaman, isn't she? She's as far away from him as it's possible to be. A mighty man, a commander of armies, and a captured girl, a slave. Right from the outset of this story, we're thrown into a world of powerful people and those who seem to be the least powerful people. But Naaman's desperate. And desperate people will often cling to any possibility. But this is a long shot, isn't it? I mean, this is like really long, long, long shot. There's a guy in a hut in Samaria somewhere that might be able to help you. And he's a prophet of a God that you don't even worship. And Naaman says, yes. Yeah, why not? I've tried everything else. I might as well give this a shot. Some holy man might be able to do what the doctors can't. And the girl seems sure, doesn't she? If only my Lord were where the prophet was in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. And so Naaman takes the suggestion of this slave girl to his king, and the king writes a letter to the king of Israel because that's what kings do, isn't it? They write letters because communicating by word, well, we all know how that ends up. Send up reinforcements becomes sweets cost two and sixpence. And Naaman packed light. He went taking with him 10 talons of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of garments. Just so you know, a, a shekel and a talon aren't numbers of things, they're weights. A talon is 33 kilograms. A thousand shekels is about 25 pounds, about 11 kilograms. So Naaman takes with him 330 kilograms of silver and 66 kilograms of gold. That's going to cost you a load of money on EasyJet. And he takes 10 sets of clothes because you never know when you might have to, you know, dress for dinner or something like that. And his chariots and his horses and his men and his letter, his letter which he gives to the king of Israel. And the letter isn't particularly clear. There's a bit missing in the letter. When this letter reaches you, know that I've sent my servant Naaman and you may cure him of leprosy. You may cure him of leprosy. This is one of those grammar moments, isn't it? You may send them to Elisha who may cure him of leprosy. That's a whole different thing. No, you're going to do it, king of Israel. Who reads the letter and goes, what? How on earth am I going to do that? Can you imagine 
being the king of Israel. The mighty king next door, who's just had a great victory with his army, sends you a letter like that. It's no wonder that the king tears his clothes with grief. Here he is, the most powerful man in his country, and there's absolutely nothing that he can do. Not a thing. He must have thought it was going to be a precursor to war. Here they come. How could it not be? The king of the Arameans sends his top commander with an incurable disease, and I'm supposed to fix it. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. There are just some things that are beyond your control, aren't there? Even if you're the king. And that's kind of what this story is about, I think. It's about power. Who thinks they have power and where the power really lies? So far in the story, the most powerful person is a little girl. Not either of the kings or naming the commander of armies but a little girl with no wealth, no position, no status. But there's also something else going on in this story. There's a division. Nationality separates them, doesn't it? The characters are from different places, different tribes. The Arameans and the Israelites are sworn enemies. They're distrustful of each other. They're suspicious of each other. They keep raiding each other's borders. That's how Naaman got the girl in the first place. And Elisha hears what happens. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent the king a message. What did you do that for? Why did you do that? Just send them to me. I bet the king felt much better after that. Just send them to me. And there's a brilliant little detail in the story. Elisha is in Samaria, where the Samaritans live. He's living amongst the people that the Israelites hate most in the world, the Samaritans. The people who are actually the most like them, but they're not exactly like them. And so they hate them over a small, insignificant difference. And of course, that would never happen in the west of Scotland these days, would it? I love what happens next. The king of Israel is desperate enough that he accepts Elisha's offer. And Naaman and all his parade turn up at Elisha's house. And Elisha does something fabulous. He sends out his messenger. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be fine. I said a minute ago this story is about power. And Naaman is livid. A powerful man, who is he to treat me like this? Elisha didn't even come out to say hello. Naaman has just come from the king's palace where he would be received with pomp and fanfare and deference. Elisha sends out his servant. But then it's not the first time in the story that a servant has brought news to Naaman, is it? But this time the servant has some instructions. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. After what must have been a really long journey, 
because journeys don't go quickly in those days, do they? A mighty warrior turns up with all his caravan and his procession and all his stuff to a shack in the middle of nowhere and is told by a servant to go and have a wash. And Naaman goes ballistic. Toys out the pram. I thought at the very least he would come out and wave his hands and pray to his God and, well, do something. We've got perfectly good rivers at home. What's so special about this one? And he stomps off in the huff. I like to think he flounces off in the huff, actually. That's, that's a better word, doesn't it? And that's what the story's really about. To be cured, all Naaman has to do is take off his clothes and wash in the river. For him, that's a problem. Naaman has servants, people who bring him water, who fill his bath and probably scrub his back and then towel him dry and cover him in ointments and oils and then dress him in his fancy clothes when he's finished. He's brought ten sets of garments with him. Who even has ten sets of garments in those days? And each set of clothes shows how wealthy and important he is. And to be cured, he has to put all of that aside. Quite literally, take it all off and go into the water. The same water where everyone else washes. And he doesn't want to do it. His pride is more important. The commander of armies. A man who sends people off to war knowing that he's sending them to their death can't even swallow his pride and go and have a wash. And it's his servants who talk him down. If he'd asked you to do something really difficult, you would have done it, wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you do this? You can just see them standing rolling their eyes. Well, here he goes again. And guess what? When he swallows his pride and does what he's told, it works. He's cured. But Naaman hasn't learned his lesson yet. He responds in the manner that rich and wealthy people do. He tries to give Elisha a gift. Here's something really expensive to show you how grateful I am. And Elisha wants nothing to do with it. Because Elisha didn't cure Naaman. God did. That's why Elisha didn't come out of the house in the first place. There could be no confusion here. Elisha has done nothing. Remember last week we heard about Elisha taking Elijah's cloak and he struck the water with it and nothing happened. And then he called on God and struck the water and the water parted. Elisha had learned that lesson already. Now it was Naaman's turn. So what does the story have to say to us? Perhaps it's got something to do with healing, although I'm not sure that the cure from leprosy is the real point of the story. Naaman is cured of his arrogance and his pride and his self-centered importance. It struck me last week 
when we read our gospel reading that there was a whole line of people who wanted to follow Jesus and Jesus said to them well come on then and they were like but I've got this thing this thing that I can't give up this thing that I need to do this thing that's just a bit more important and I can't leave it behind and today we read about the 72 being sent out and, and told not to take anything with them there's nothing that you can take that will help you in this for naming the thing that he couldn't let go of was his status and his pride his ego I wonder what it is for us I use an app to keep track of my running it's called Strava right? and if it's not on Strava it didn't happen and Strava every month sends me an email to tell me just how far and how often I've run and it's always really depressing because it's never very far and it's never very often and every time I get the email I wonder why is it not further and more often why don't I run more because I enjoy it and I feel better when I've done it and I know that it's good for me but sometimes I decide to do something else instead like stay in my bed or eat chocolate or watch the telly or whatever really I choose to do something else and I suspect that our own spiritual practice is a bit like my running we know that it's good to spend time in prayer we know that we feel better when we do it we know that it's good for us and yet we find ourselves doing a multitude of other things instead or perhaps our issue is with the things that we're asked by God to do I wonder if we're a bit like Naaman it's really straightforward it's not really that difficult maybe it's just a bit too easy sometimes some of you have seen this picture already this week I put it up on Facebook the other day it's a picture two weeks ago I wasn't here Anne was leading the service and while she was doing that I was drawing which is one of my least favourite things in the whole world to be told to draw on command so I don't like drawing in the first place but when somebody tells me that I have to do it then that's you know that's always a joy I was in Cambridge on a course and the question was what's your dream of how your church might be in a year what's your dream of how your church might be in a year and the only thing that came into my head was open doors so that's what I drew that's what that is just in case you're wondering it's doors that are open and I wonder if it came into my head because I look at the doors every week I can see the doors from here you can't see the doors but I can see the doors and the reason I can see the doors is that they're shut every week at 11 o'clock we close the doors and that bothers me it bothers me because it's a lovely day it's not cold it's not windy there's no reason to shut the doors other than we always shut the doors at 11 o'clock and sometimes when it's cold and wet that's a good idea but mostly we just close the doors because somewhere out there is someone who wants to steal a hundred copies of mission praise <laughs> praise God
Closing the doors has something to do with us wanting to be warm and dry. Us wanting to be comfortable. But I wonder if it's one of those things that actually makes a big difference in how we think. If the doors are open, that says something about us and it says something to the world, I think. Come in, not we're closed. I think there are people who walk past every Sunday and if there were no cars outside, they wouldn't know that there was anything on because they can't see. And mostly they won't be able to hear us either because we've got big stone walls to keep the noise in. Our priorities say a lot. If we prioritize prayer, then we prioritize God. And if we do that, then our lives are different. The other stuff becomes less important and God becomes more important. And it's just a small thing. One small thing. But it's one small thing that changes our whole lives. That's what Naaman discovered. Here's a philosophical question for you, because I went to the Philosopher's Cafe last week and it was great. You should all go. If I never went for a run again, would I still be a runner? If I never went for a run again, would I still be a runner? I don't think I would be. I could open a gear shop because I've got enough stuff to do that. But I don't think I would be a runner. I think I would have been a runner. So the same question, how does that work with being a Christian? What if we don't do the things that make us a Christian? What if we don't actively follow Jesus? I don't think it's thinking about going for a run that makes me a runner. I believe in running deeply. I think it's amazing. Everybody should do it. But that doesn't make me a runner, does it? doesn't make me any fitter doesn't make me get an email from Strava that's got more numbers in it I think it's the same with our faith we could get into a very long theological conversation about faith and works, Calvin wrote a book about it you should read it, it's amazing but faith that doesn't lead to action is that faith at all? we practice our faith the doing bit is vital. So I wonder, what does my image of an open door say to you? What, as a church, should we be open to? Who should we be open to? When I go back to the same place next year on the same weekend and they pull out this picture and say, so, how did your dream go? I wonder what I'm going to say to them. I wonder what I'm going to tell them about our open door. Because I think when we spend a minute thinking about what the church could do for and with other people, we get a big long list. You've all got a list in your heads. There's lots of things that we could do. But the next question is always, that's great, who's going to do that? And the answer to that question is always about our priorities. Because we can all find time to watch EastEnders or binge in a box set or spend hours on Facebook or whatever else it is that steals our time. There are about, there's probably over 100 people here today. 100 people come every week. Imagine if we all spent an hour 
doing something to grow the church each week. Just one hour. That's 100 hours. That's three full-time jobs. That's three full-time jobs. Imagine what we could achieve. And then imagine that we gave two hours or three. Or that there were 200 of us. Or 300 of us. Imagine the difference that that would make. Naaman eventually gets it. How do we know? Because he calls himself Elisha's servant. He calls himself a servant. He realizes it's not about what we've got. It's about how much we've been blessed. And the difference that that blessing makes to each and every one of us because through it, we are changed and can help others to change too. Naaman bathes seven times in the Jordan because seven is the time that you spend cleaning yourself ritually from death. You wash seven times in this tradition if you've touched something that's dead. Naaman is reborn in the Jordan. I think sometimes we all need a bit of help opening those big, heavy doors to our hearts. Perhaps, though, it's just too simple, too straightforward, too easy. It's like Naaman been asked to go and wash. It's that easy. It's that simple to be opened up to new life. To have others see that God is important to us. The most important thing. Or is it too hard? Too hard to give up our precious time to share our blessings with our neighbours. Too hard to share God's love with the people sitting around us. The people we meet in the street every week. Too hard to begin each day with a minute of prayer. And to end each day with a minute of prayer. And if you don't know how to start, here's a question that you could ask to people that you meet. How can I help? How can I help? What can I do for you? And if you don't know how to pray, spend a minute each day telling God all the things you're grateful for. Pick three things. And I put my life on it that it will change your life. Big changes come from small beginnings. Long journeys start with a single step. So what's next? What's going to come through those doors? Or maybe more excitingly, what's going to go out through those doors? Amen. Let's sing. Will you come and follow me?
Thanks for listening. If you have any comments, questions or thoughts about this week's sermon, then please do get in touch. We create this podcast at anchor.fm where you can leave us a voice message. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We post the audio of the whole service each week on our website. There are details of all of this in the show notes. If you're in the neighbourhood and want to join us in person, we meet for worship every Sunday at 11am. We'd love to see you.